turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 3, found on page 1154. Mark chapter 3, we're going to read verses 20 to 35, to the end of the chapter. Listen, this is God's word. Then the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub. And by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he has an unclean spirit. Then his brothers and his mother came, Standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And the multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. Amen. May God bless us the reading of his word. I wonder if any of you struggle when filling in online forms. You come to a page on the form and it asks you to tick one of the following three boxes that apply to you. And you find yourself thinking, none of these boxes apply to me. But the only way to progress in the application form is to pick one of the boxes. Well, Mark is doing the same here in this gospel. He's giving you three boxes to pick from in deciding the identity of Christ. C.S. Lewis summarizes Christ's identity, that he is either mad or bad or God. And Josh McDowell does something similar. He calls it the trilemma. And describing Christ, he's either a lunatic, a liar, or he is Lord. And that's helpful because many want to say that Jesus is simply a good example, that he's a miracle worker, that he's a good teacher or a prophet, that he's a revolutionary, and so he is a champion for the cause of feminism or socialism. Those options don't exist in the gospel accounts. The gospel writings don't allow you to sit on the fence when it comes to Jesus. 
Today in our passage, we see how his family see him as mad, as a lunatic. The professionals, the religious leaders, they see him as bad, as a liar, while it's the disciples that see him as Lord, that he is God. And so while Mark is giving us these three options, he helps us see that Jesus is neither bad nor mad. And so I want you to recognize that Jesus is not mad or bad, but he is the Lord God. And so you must do his will, for in him you have freedom, you have forgiveness, and you have family. So firstly, notice Jesus is not mad. Instead, you are to recognize that he is trustworthy. Jesus' family are concerned for him. Remember, Jesus came from a humble background. He's a carpenter from Nazareth. But now he's preaching and attracting crowds of people. People are pressing, on, pressing in on him so that they can be healed. And we read in verse 20 that the multitude are making constant demands that he does not even have time to eat bread. Well, any mother is concerned when her son is not eating correctly. In verse 21, we see they were concerned with him, but it's more than him not eating. They are concerned for his mental well-being. They are saying he is out of his mind, and we read that they came to lay hold of him. This means they have traveled from Nazareth to Capernaum to take charge of him, to seize him, and to bring him back home. And so as well as being concerned for Jesus, they were concerned for their own family reputation. This was an honor-shame culture, and what Jesus was doing was bringing shame on the family, or so they thought, going around, making these claims that he is a king of a kingdom, that he can forgive sins, and that he even attacks the rules of the religious leaders. Well, that would be shameful to the family. They're thinking, he can't say that. He's only our brother. John, his gospel mentions in John 7, verse 5, even his brothers did not believe him. Now, Jesus' family had come, like the men in white coats, to put Jesus in a straitjacket. They wanted to control him. They did not like what he was doing. They were embarrassed by their brother. I wonder if the boys and girls here ever get embarrassed by their brother or their sister. They do something silly, and as a result, they get lots of attention, and maybe you feel embarrassed, and you tell your family, your parents, you won't believe what Johnny did at school today, or you won't believe what Maisie did at church today. But let's not forget who Jesus Christ is. These brothers would have grown up with Jesus. They would have known that he never did anything wrong. He was always dependable. He was always kind. He was always loving toward them. Jesus is perfect. What embarrassment would he bring to the family? For he had always brought honor. They should have recognized that Jesus is not out of his mind, but perfectly sane. But they were the ones who were not thinking right. There is a scene in the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Lucy tells her siblings, Peter, Susan, Edmund, that she had visited this mysterious land and she had met a fawn named Mr. Tumnus by traveling through a wardrobe. And they do not believe her. Well, later Lucy returns to this mysterious world that she called Narnia 
and her brother Edmund follows her into Narnia through the wardrobe. But when they return to tell Peter and Susan, Edmund denies visiting Narnia and tells Peter and Susan that it was all a silly story. Well, Peter and Susan are worried that Lucy is losing her mind, and so they speak to Professor Kirk. And when they speak to him, they're surprised to find that he believes Lucy's story. Professor Kirk says, why don't they teach logic at these schools? There are only three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies, or she is mad, or she is telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies, and it's obvious she is not mad. For the moment then, and unless any further evidence turns up, we must assume she is telling the truth. Well, likewise, Jesus' brothers should know that Jesus is not crazy, that he is speaking the truth, that he is consistent in what he says and does. Many who follow Jesus are described as crazy too. The Apostle Paul is described as crazy by the ruler Festus. We read of this in Acts 26. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Christ calls you to find him trustworthy, and so you are to put your faith in him. Believe in his miracles. Believe that he rose again from the grave. Many will say, this is crazy. But when you consider the evidence, it's the only logical conclusion. Yes, Jesus made big statements, many that sound incredible. But when we consider that Jesus is God, they are very credible. If Christ is who he says he is, then it is right for us to find him trustworthy. Well, secondly, let's consider Jesus is not bad. Rather, believe the truth that he is God. So verse 22, we read of these religious leaders who have come down from Jerusalem to investigate Jesus. They've been spying on him. They want to find an inconsistency so that they can then discredit him. They recognize that he has power, and they saw his miracles. They saw his ability to remove demons. But they conclude their investigation by saying that Jesus is Beelzebub. Beelzebub, or Beelzebul in other translations, is the name for the god Baal from the Old Testament. But over time, this name became synonymous for Satan. And so they accused Jesus of being the devil. And that is by the devil's power that Jesus is able to remove demons. And this accusation that Jesus was a sorcerer continued to be popular even in the early centuries of Christianity. In the Jewish Talmud, it describes Jesus the Nazarene who practiced magic and deceived and led Israel astray. But this accusation doesn't make sense. And Jesus responds to their accusation by asking, how can Satan cast out Satan? Jesus makes it clear how absurd their thinking is. What the religious leaders are suggesting is that of a civil war in Satan's kingdom. But if that's the case, Satan is finished. The other day, Senator Graham tweeted, is there a Brutus in Russia the only way for this war to end is for somebody in Russia to take this guy out. You'll be doing your country and the world a great service. Well, Brutus assassinated Julius Caesar and brought an end to his reign. And likewise, Senator Green wants Russia to be divided and for someone from within his kingdom, within his house, to assassinate Putin to end the war in Ukraine. 
Well, that's why it doesn't make sense to say that Jesus is Satan. For Jesus is not aiding Satan's kingdom. He is opposed to him. And that's clearly seen in the exorcisms. In removing the demon's control over various people, he is bringing an end to Satan so that he cannot stand. Why would the prince of demons drive out demons? Their accusation is foolish. Jesus is not the devil. He really is God. He is speaking the truth and not lies. What is really going on is that that these religious leaders see Jesus as a threat. He's undermining their influence and control of the Jewish community by his questioning of their many petty rules. And they make these false accusations to protect themselves so they do not have to deal with the truth. Many today do the same. We live in a world of fake news and clickbait. News stories come with great fanfare that they find something that discredits Christianity. But then they go quiet when they're proven to be false. One such example was the excitement that rose from Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code. It was full of conspiracy theories that sounded credible, so many took a novel to be fact. But really it shows a sad reality that people love conspiracy theories. They would rather believe the lie than the truth. The religious leaders, they prefer a lie than the truth. And so it's no wonder Jesus said in John 8:44. You're off your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and so does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Jesus is not the liar. It's the religious leaders. They are colluding with Satan. They are choosing to believe his lies and peddle them. Many today are like these religious leaders, believing in half-packed ideas that come from Satan, rather than believe the truth from Jesus. Well, thirdly, notice that Jesus is the one who binds Satan, so you can know freedom and forgiveness. Verses 27 to 30. So Jesus speaks to the religious leaders in parables, and here we read of a very short parable in verse 27. Jesus speaks of a strong man who lives in a house with his possessions. And describing this man as strong speaks of his power and control. Well, this is a picture of Satan. He is controlling all mankind who are the possessions of the house. To remove this strong man's possessions is only possible by binding the strong man. He has to be taken out. And this is what Jesus is doing. There is no civil war for Jesus came to break into Satan's kingdom. He came to bind him and plunder his possession, for he is stronger than even Satan. His possessions are you and me. Naturally, we are part of Satan's kingdom. We are known as children of the devil. Satan held us captive. And so Jesus therefore removes us from Satan's kingdom of darkness and brings us into his kingdom. This parable of the strong man doesn't come out of thin air. Jesus is making a reference to a prophecy in Isaiah 49 where the strong man is described as mighty. And you'll see this in your outline. Isaiah 49, shall the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of the righteous be delivered? 
But thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible be delivered. For I will contend with him who contends with you, and I will save your children. I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. This prophecy ultimately comes true when Jesus defeated the Mighty One, the strong man, on the cross. On the cross, Jesus paid the price for our sin. And as a result, Satan can no longer use our sin or use the guilt of our sin against us. We are free from his dominion. We are liberated from his accusations. And as a result, we know forgiveness of sins. And we read of that in verse 28. But then Jesus speaks of the unforgivable sin. And this passage causes people to be afraid, wondering, have they committed the unforgivable sin? Have they said or have they done something that then means that they cannot know God's forgiveness? Well, to even think that shows you have not committed the unforgivable sin. To be concerned, that shows you are sensitive to the work of the Spirit. However, this verse is still a warning. If you reject Jesus, who is the only way of forgiveness, then clearly you have committed the unforgivable sin, and so you will be condemned. You're blaspheming the Holy Spirit when you have the truth, and yet you reject it. That's what the religious leaders were doing. They accused Jesus of having an unclean spirit, that he was of the devil, and in doing so, they were rejecting Christ as their means of salvation. This blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not a one-off speaking against Jesus Christ. There are many who have spoken against Christ. Consider that Peter denied him. Paul killed many who declared Christ's name. Thomas doubted him, and yet they would all know forgiveness of sins. Instead, it is a persistent resistance to follow Christ. It is seeing the evidence and yet choosing to reject it. It is what condemns all unbelievers. For when they reject Christ, they are rejecting the only way of forgiveness that God has provided. And so it is a warning to any here who know the truth and yet reject it, saying that Jesus is not God. In continuing in that unbelief, you are committing the unforgivable sin. The other day, a warning light came on in my car saying my fuel tank was low and the car estimated how many more miles I would travel. Now, if I choose to ignore the warning light and say, it's not true, well, we all know what will happen. My car will come to a stop. Well, likewise, if you choose to ignore this warning from Christ, you'll be condemned. And we read that it will be eternal. It's an eternity in hell where we face God's rightful judgment for rejecting him. So Jesus is the one who binds Satan. And so only in Christ have you freedom and forgiveness. Well, fourthly notice, Jesus calls you from your family into his own family. Verses 31 to 35. 
Verse 31, Jesus' mother and brothers come to him and call for Jesus to come out and see him. And when your mother asks you to do something, you do it. And that's certainly the assumption that Mary and Jesus' brothers had, that Jesus would honor his family by immediately coming out to see him. Jesus responds to their request from his family in a shocking way. He asks the question, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And this sounds harsh. Why would he say this about his own family? They were concerned for him. But Jesus saw something more important. Yes, he loved his family. That's clearly seen in how he provided for his mother when he was dying on the cross. But his family ties are not eternal. Instead, Jesus came to call his people to himself, and they would then be his spiritual family. He looked around at this group of people that, he, that were with him. Most likely, the 12 disciples were there, as well as others. It's as if he is thinking, my family are not looking for me. They have already found me. These are my family. And that's striking because for the Jews, they had a great respect and admiration for their natural family. And it's interesting how Mark puts Jesus' mother Mary and his brothers on the outside, while Jesus and his disciples, they are in the inside. And that shows where they are spiritually. They do not accept him as a king, and so they are not inside his kingdom. And that's significant, especially in regards to Mary. Many foolishly consider Mary to be sinless, and that she is a co-redeemer with Jesus. That's not how Jesus saw her here. At this time, she was on the outside. He did not even describe her as a spiritual mother. Only those who believe that Jesus is king and know forgiveness of sins through him are part of Christ's family. As Jesus' family, you are to act like his family. Jesus says those who do the will of God are his brother and sister and mother. Those who recognize him as Lord and follow him as his disciples are Christ's brothers and sisters. The evidence for this is your love for God. And is your love for God, is that you love your brothers and sisters. And John speaks of this in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Wilhelm Hurst in his commentary says, in this family we are united by ties much stronger, far deeper than those of even the closest human family. These ties are stronger than genetics, stronger than marriage, stronger than human love. They are, based, they are ties based on blood, but not ours. The life of this family begins with the blood of Jesus Christ. And so you are united to each other in a deeper way than even that of your natural family. The other day I was asked if I was related to a particular person, and I said that we're distantly related, we're third cousins, to which the reply was, well, that doesn't count, otherwise you would be related to half of Ireland. But I did say we are closer in Christ than we are in blood, and that's the main thing. So look around this room. 
Here are your brothers and your sisters in Christ. Despite you being from very different backgrounds, you have a bond with each other in Christ, a bond that is more important than even that of your natural family. And if your natural family comes in the way of your relationship with God, well, you must put God first. Your family is not to become an idol. And this can be very difficult, especially when our families do things that that are against God's will. And you cannot tolerate this. And that's becoming increasingly common as our world moves further and further from God's design for what it even means to be family. And for some of you, that will mean making hard decisions. But you are not doing anything harder than what Jesus Christ did himself. He left his family to accomplish his mission. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 37, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. But you are not left without a family. You are now within God's family. And this church is part of his loving family. And many have commented on the love in this church. The other week, the Hootons came into membership. And I love what Jill said when she spoke to the congregation. She said that on their first visit to our church, they felt like distant relatives turning up at a family reunion. Later, she describes this as her church home. Well, what beautiful words to describe our church family. But it's so important that we continue in that love. It will be hard. There will be times when people will say things that are hurtful, when we feel ignored or belittled. There will be times when we have to be patient with others, when we have to say sorry. There are times when we have to forgive and not hold grudges, when we are not to take things personally and instead bear with one another. We do that every day with our natural family, and so you must do it in your church family too. It's terrible when church families break down. No, you are to be a support to each other. You are to encourage one another as you seek to do God's will. That's what families do. So how do you see Jesus? The other week, we visited the Blue Spring Caverns in Bedford. And during the tour, they turn off the lights so you are completely in the dark. And they say it's 20 times darker than the night sky. So you're completely blind. And that's what it was like for Jesus' family when they saw Jesus as mad, as being out of his mind. That's what it was like for the religious leaders when they saw Jesus as being bad, as being off the devil. They were in darkness. But while they were in darkness, the light of Christ shone. Thankfully, Mary and Jesus' brothers, like James and Jude, they later do trust in Christ. In the book of Acts, we read of a list of the 12 disciples. And alongside them, we read the women were with them and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Not only were they Jesus' natural family, but more importantly, they became his spiritual family too. Likewise, the religious leaders, the light of Christ shone into their darkness. Many would change their mind about Jesus being from the devil and so would know forgiveness. We read of this in Acts 6 verse 7. The word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. 
They believed in Jesus. They followed him and they left behind their life of religious rule keeping. And so if you're in darkness today, recognize Jesus not as mad or bad, but as the Lord God. And so you must do his will. In him, you have freedom, you have forgiveness, and you have family. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for how you have revealed Jesus Christ to us, that we would not see Jesus as mad or bad. Instead, that we would recognize that he is God. And so we thank you that in him we have forgiveness of sins. We thank you that in him we have freedom from Satan's dominion. And we thank you that in Christ we have a loving family. And so, Lord, remind us of these wonderful truths this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please turn in your psalm book, and we're going to sing Psalm 27c. Psalm 27c, the psalmist is facing adversity, and it's even from his own family. We see that in stanza 11. My father and my mother both may leave me all alone, but surely then the Lord himself will take me as his own. The psalm has hope. For God is our heavenly Father, in him we have family support. So let us cry out to God with these words. Let's stand and sing Psalm 27C.